0: We are building a religion, we are building it bigger, we are widening the corridors and adding more lanes, we are building a religion, a limited edition, we are now accepting callers This is the Ruby on Rails podcast, I'm Jeffrey Gersenbach, you can find me at topfunky.com I'm going to be interviewing Jim Wyrick today, his website is one onestepback.org Shameless plug right here, I'm going to be teaching a one-day, intense Ruby on Rails seminar in London on March 30th with Carson Workshops. So you can go to CarsonWorkshops.com, or you can go to my site, TopFunky.com, and find the details out about that. RailsConf, already sold out. If you don't have a ticket, it's too late. You can still go to Canada on Rails, April 13th and 14th, go to Canadaonrails.com. You can get a ticket. David Hennemeyer Hansen, Thomas Fuchs, bunch of other brilliant Ruby on Rails programmers are going to be there speaking. Jim Weirich is the Santa Claus of Ruby giving all kinds of great gifts. This time it's whether you are naughty or nice. Among other things, he's the author of Rake and XML Builder. He's also a great promoter of Ruby for a long time, and you can see him at different conferences like OSCON or RubyConf, or even speaking at some local Ruby groups as well. So welcome. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So at RubyConf, I talked to you briefly, and you said that you hadn't worked much with Rails, but... You wrote Rake, which is a big part of that, and XML Builder, which is mm-hmm. used for all kinds of web services. And without those two, we barely have Ruby on foot. <laughs> uh, tell, and also there, you told the story of how you first came up with Rake. Tell that story for people who haven't heard that. Oh, I love telling this story because this is this is just so typical of, of uh, Ruby
1: development. I was um, working at my day job, and I was working on a make file uh, with someone else. We were trying to get it to do something just a wee bit unusual, and I don't even recall exactly what that was anymore, but it had something to do with version numbers and dynamically generating them and affecting the rest of the make build based upon that. And we were going off and calling awk and munging things, and it was just really complicated to do something that should have been really easy, and I... uh, was getting very frustrated I turned to Ryan who was working with me and I said Ryan wouldn't it just be great if make were written in Ruby and Ryan kind of looks at me funny and says "Uh, yes Jim it would be but I have no idea what you mean so I turned around to my whiteboard and I just kind of scribbled something on the whiteboard uh, that looks a lot like today's rake syntax I identified a target to be built and I said actions go here in a block and then uh, the program Ruby would figure out exactly what actions need to be triggered based upon what targets and and that and Ryan says that's a great idea and we talked over it over for a few minutes and uh, decided it is a great idea but no one would ever do it because it would just be too hard who would who would rewrite make just to get a nice syntax on it. And so we left out that. We solved our problems, and we went on. And then later that day, I was sitting at my desk, and I was thinking, now, what would it exactly take to do this? And I thought, well, you need a list of tasks. You need you know, dependencies, and that's pretty easy to do and keep track of which have executed and which have not. And so I sat down, and it took about 20 minutes. And I fiddled around, and in 20 minutes, I had the very first working version of what then became Rake, and I went back to Ryan's desk and I said, "Pull up your email. I've got something to show you." And we just marveled over it. It was it the the basic engine fit on one page of code. We could see the entire thing on one screen. Wow! And and it was it was just amazing. And and I said, "Now, you know, this is this is just toy, obviously, because I don't do things like." time-based dependencies, like make will figure out what files are out of date and automatically rebuild based upon file times. And I said, I don't do any of that, and that would be too hard to do, and no one would want to do that anyways. So (laughs) I went back to my desk, and I thought, well, would it really be that hard? And in another half hour, I had hacked in file... um, timestamp dependencies into the rake engine and I went back to Ryan and he said this is this is great and Ryan is the one who suggested the name rake uh, for ruby make and his uh, image was a little guy with a rake kind of raking up the leaves of dependencies and ordering them and putting them together so that's kind of that's where it started and the first that first version uh was under 100 lines of code altogether even with the timestamp um detection in it and, of course, it's grown since then, and we've added a lot of extra stuff. but the basic engine is still pretty simple
0: and pretty straightforward.: Wow, I'll have to take a look at that. I didn't actually look at that code before today, but it seems that uh, that would be educational just seeing how concise something could be, and yet have a lot of functionality.
1: I think the the original version is still out there in the documentation. If you look through the R docs, I think there's a link to the original version. okay, all right i have to double check that.
0: Now, last night I was at the Seattle Pearl user group, famous Pearl group. I think mm-hmm. maybe one of the biggest in the country and they've received different awards and things like that. But And of course I was presenting Ruby on Rails which was pretty well received. And I said, you know, one of the great things about Ruby is we have Rake and you can easily write these different tasks and automate things. And I said, you know, I've looked around but it hadn't found anything like that for Perl. And that seems like something that Perl programmers would want to do. And yet nobody in the room knew about that. Of course, there are tools where you can generate a traditional make file, Mm -hmm. but people even said, well, you know, if that existed, I don't think Perl programmers would use it because they'd rather just write their own or, or something like that. (laughs) What do you think it was about the Ruby community that people really, latched onto that and appreciated and used Rake, or do you think other languages would benefit from a similar tool in their own language?
1: You know, that's a good question. I think there are several um, factors that uh, affect this. Uh, First of all, there are some Perl-based build systems. Uh, In fact, the Perl build system is one such Um, thing. It's on CPAN. I have no idea how active it is or uh, how current it is or if it's just vaporware, but it is out out there in CPAN and it's very much like Rake in that it is a Perl file where you specify all your dependencies and whatnot in Perl itself, in the language itself, and you have all the power of Perl to do what you want to with it. Uh, There's also other things like um, the Perl power tools. uh, I've re-implemented Make, itself, the traditional syntax make stuff in, in Perl. And so they have done some of that. Um, There's a difference though. And I think one of the reasons is kind of language based in a way in that Ruby is one of those languages that really lends itself to having a flexible syntax that it can take on these other forms, these other domain specific language type things uh, there is a there's a Python version of um, a, a make tool. I think it's called SCons, and they do very much the same thing that Rake does, but the but it doesn't read as naturally as the Rake syntax does. And I think that's a big factor in in using Rake is that you look at it and it looks like you're defining tasks, and even the little hash um, that, that we use for arguments, we use the arrows. So you say this symbol, arrow towards the dependencies. It reads right, and it looks right. And the fact that blocks are right there, and you can define them right there in the language, it, it just flows together very well. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, Perl syntax is just not going to cut. I mean, it is flexible, but it's, it's a little bit too much, and I don't think it has that same degree of rightness that uh, you, can, you can get to in a, a Ruby-type syntax. Ruby is interesting in that uh, it can define, it can morph itself into all these other types of syntaxes for domain-specific languages uh, in a way that is usually reserved for much, much simpler languages like Scheme or Lisp. Uh, They also lend themselves to domain-specific languages, but their syntax is so much simpler, it's easier to morph it. Ruby has a complex syntax, but yet you're still able to do a lot of the same kind of things. Um, not quite as well as as Lisp or
0: Scheme, but but s- still very good at it. Where did you come up with the syntax for that? As you say, it fits very well for that particular domain in defining tasks, and it looks a lot different from any other Ruby code. Although other uh, things like Switch Tower for deployment has copied that same syntax, and it works well also.
1: Well, I, I think it's been copied somewhat. You know what? I, I don't really remember trying to sit down and think what a good syntax will be. Uh, the When I turned around on the whiteboard and scribbled something for Ryan, I didn't have the dependencies on there. I just said, uh, in fact, I called it target instead of task, and I had the the task name and as a string, then I had a a do-end block there. So I really hadn't thought of dependencies. But when I was sitting down there and writing it, I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could, like, indicate that somehow? I thought, oh, pass in a hash, and uh, we'll do the work of picking apart the hash inside the task method. And in my mind, that was a questionable decision because it's really playing loose and fast with the syntax of Ruby. Uh, But it looked so nice. It was very visually attractive to me, and I went... uh, ahead uh, with that idea. And I think it was probably a a good idea. Um, I I think it's borne out well over the time.
0: I realized recently, maybe just last week, that in relation to Rails, I can just list environment as a prerequisite and then my database connection and everything else will happen and then I can use my models and I can connect right to the database within a, a rate task i like I like the way that works, and today I think it's
1: it's the it's the power of Ruby right there in your build system,
0: yeah, which is incredible to be able to deal with the database that easily prerequisite and there you go, and also Jeremy Voorhees today had a blog post from me it was yesterday about uh you know a little riddle of of what would this particular task do, and he was showing how you could even generate other rake tasks within a rake task, which seemed pretty crazy.
1: I saw that, yeah. What an interesting idea. The, the, the funny thing is that when you go to start executing the tasks, he actually incrementally adds tasks to the dependency
0: list as it's going along. Okay, so not only is it making new ones, but they're, it's depending on those as well or just adding them to the list?
1: And we do that, actually Rake will do that itself uh, with the rule system. You can specify patterns, uh, like, it goes something like this. If you see a file that ends in a .o, and you have a file that ends in a .c, well, here is the actions you use to build a .o from a .c. Or if you can't find a .o, then maybe some other kind of compiler uh, file could be used. So it... When it sees that, the rules will trigger and it will dynamically add those dependencies to your dependency tree as rake is running I wonder and that's if- very make like actually make does something very similar to that we're just copying that kind of facility, but using the power of ruby to to do that
0: now, as Ruby becomes more popular or maybe it's happening already, do you see people using Rake to automate tasks? For other languages, most of the examples you give, gave, like this one right now, relate to building C files or compiling or whatever. Do you, are you aware of other people doing that, or are people using it mostly just with other Ruby files? Um, I know uh,
1: specifically of several people who are using Rake to build very, very, very large C++ uh, build systems and there's particular problems when you get to really large systems with lots of dependencies because your build system runs slower because it's got to figure out all those dependencies and and do all that. So they've done some things to help speed that up, and I think that's very interesting. So, yes, there is interest in using it for non-Ruby tasks as well. I've had a number of people ask me about uh, integration with Java, um, which is interesting because Java has a very strong build system that, Every single Java programmer knows Ant and uses Ant for just about every Java project out there. So uh, there's some interest in using it for Java, but I think that's going to be a hard sell for the mainstream Java user.
0: Because there's already a good tool out there that people are familiar with. Yeah, yeah.
1: And Ant really, really understands building Java systems, where Rake is a more general-purpose
0: tool. You could teach it about Java systems, but it's not built in. Well, one of the new features that you built into Rake, and I think it was just released a month ago or, or pretty s- recently, was being able to run tasks in parallel, either using threads or some other mechanism. Tell us a little bit about that, and was there a need that, or a particular instance that made you want to implement that, or is there a place that you have in mind in the future that, where people would use that?
1: Well, That's a really interesting uh, little feature that got added there, and it was never my intention to put that in, but I was uh, scanning through the Rails mailing list one day, and I saw one posting that had rake in the title, and so oh well, let's let's see what's going on with rake and Rails. So I pulled it up, and I think it was a fellow named Doug Young, who said, uh, "Hey, I do this with all my rake tasks," and he. S- uh, told how he opens up the task object itself and replaces the invoke loop where we go through and invoke all the prerequisites for task and replaces that with a loop that spawns off threads for each one. Now, oh, that, you know, just one simple uh, method he opened up, made a one-line change to it, and he was using it with rake, and I thought that's a really cool idea. So I I stole the idea from him. I did it a little bit differently and the the official version now will go and is thread safe uh, with regard to prerequisites. He didn't bother with any of that and for his limited use that was probably fine but we make sure that prerequisites are carefully run and and all the prerequisites are complete before you spawn off the the actions for that main multitask. So the idea came from a user who was using it and finding great use for it and I Thought that would be easy to implement. As far as ideas for where to use it, I don't really have um, a great deal of insight into it. I haven't used it too much myself, but it'd be great for those kinds of tasks that you can that that are very I/O bound, and you can do a multiple number of them uh, at the same time without interfering with each other. Um, copying files from one system to another might be one such example, or uploading something, and you got a bunch of different things to upload. Splitting them off into separate threads might be useful for that. I was talking with one fellow at a Ruby conference once, and he was interested in using um, distributed builds and tying DRB into Rake and doing uh, spawning off, you know, pieces of builds on on different machines, and it could tie into something like that as well.
0: It'd be very interesting to do. Now, this would take a little bit more machinery to get it to work, but you could almost split off your Rails unit tests and functional tests, having both use different databases and run concurrently instead of running one and then the other. Mm. But I don't, I don't know if that would even... people. Of course, people are always wanting to speed up their tests, make them work faster, and there are a number <laughs> of other s- solutions that people have tried to come up with, DRB and other things like that. I find the rails tests in general
1: run slow for me okay um and because because they're hitting the database so much um and, and I don't do a lot of rails programming either, but uh, for most of the unit tests I do rake runs really fast on just running the the unit tests
0: well, since we're talking about rails, one thing that has been done recently was just to break out different rake tasks into an individual directory have whatever file.rake, and then you can uh, share those different tasks and easily drop them into a folder, and, and then people can use those. Do you think that's ever something that would be a standard part of rake, or what's a good way, let's say if you, even if it was outside of a Rails application, what's a good way to share different tasks that may be just generic, but would do some good things. For example, somebody had mentioned, hey, it'd be great to have uh, a rake task that looked at my subversion or source control log files and generated a change log from all of that. If I was going to write something like that and distribute it, what's a good way to do that now?
1: I think what Rails is doing with uh, the breakup of the rake task is a great idea, especially since you have so many people contributing different pieces. It makes it a lot easier to distribute it in parts like that uh, when you don't have one file you've got to bunch together. And and he's just basically using a little bit of Ruby glue to read in the uh, different pieces of the Rake file, essentially. Uh, so that's great. I've been also thinking about this kind of independent of that thought, and I would like to put together a plug-in system for Rake. And the first step of that was done in the, the release we just did where we added namespaces. And namespaces are a critical first step because if you're going to be combining pieces of rake files from different sources, you want to make sure that the task names that you define are not going to step on other task names that people define. So if you can put all your tasks within a namespace and then publicize the public ones, but have all the other internal ones hidden from everybody else, it's going to make it easier to combine uh, rake files like that. The other piece of it, which is not done yet, I'm still thinking about, is uh, for the plugin system. Is uh, there's well, there's a couple things I want to happen with the plugin system. First, I want it to be really easy to distribute plugins. Uh, that means that probably they're going to be probably not gem based, but gem. Uh, friendly, so that you can take a plug-in, make a gem out of it, and the only thing a person would have to do to get that plug-in was to be a normal gem install. Nothing beyond that should be required. Um, so Rake will you know, be able to find those, however they're installed by gems, be able to find them and locate them. Uh, the other piece of that... Um, Is have some kind of standard way of identifying when pieces of that plugin is going to be run. Uh, there's a stand- It'll be a standard way of identifying that this piece of code will run when the plugin's loaded into Rake. Uh, this piece of code will run when you instantiate a set of tasks uh, defined by this plugin. This code. Uh, we'll run, you know, at some other points and be able to identify those. And that might be as simple as creating every plugin will have a plugin task that has a uh, when loaded, when defined type methods on it that just get called at the appropriate time. So there's hooks into it that plugins can define code that can be run at different times. The details of that is still kind of bouncing around in my head, and I don't know how it's all going to end up, but that's the direction I want to go with the whole plug-in idea. Well, that sounds, it sounds like they would be very useful. The problem is I'm not quite sure exactly what hooks are needed yet. I'm still kind of experimenting in that area and uh, finding out what's going to be useful, and it's probably going to be an evolutionary process anyways. Uh, just like rake is, we, we discover oh, it would be nice to have this, and we grow it in that direction, and it'll, it'll get there eventually. Um, and I think, you know, some of the best software works like that. As you find out what you need, you meet those needs, and you can t- continue to uh, deliver more value.
0: Now, one of the things that sometimes confuses people is if I already have a rake task defined somewhere or, you know, one of the basic ones that ship with rake and I define that task again, it adds to it, it doesn't override it. What was the design behind that? I know there are ways to get around that if you want to clear out the original ones originally. That
1: That was was a a very deliberate design decision um, because I want to be able to define tasks incrementally in Rake. I want to be able to, at one point in the code, specify the dependencies for a task, and another point in the code specify the actions to take upon uh, when that task gets invoked, and to be able to incrementally specify that uh, was a very important part of the original design, and, and done very deliberately like that. Um, I, I did see someone, and again, here's another example of reading the mailing list and seeing, oh, I do this uh, with my rake file, and someone else opened up the, uh, the rake task and added a undefined command or something like that, and I thought, hmm, that might be useful, so I'm guessing that the next version of Rake will probably support that natively. So, if you want to explicitly remove a task and rebuild it from scratch, you'll be able to do that. I guess. Yes, and, and responding to responding to what people need and and uh, growing
0: the program in that direction. And I guess that's part of the power of open source: is either people throwing out ideas that other people think useful, and if it is useful enough, then maybe somebody implements it that, and then it get gets worked in.
1: And it's very true because people use Rake in ways that I would never have used it. I have never had a need to really undefine a task. So it didn't get put into Rake originally. But seeing what, how other people using it are, are using it and, and what they need gives me ideas on, on the direction to grow it. Great getting feedback like that. I love it. If you've got ideas, send them to me. I might say no, <laughs> but I might say, oh, that's a good idea and include it someday.
0: Well, recently, of course, Ruby, the core Ruby interpreter—is always being upgraded. And I think in the 1.83 or, or maybe even current, there was something that broke the existing <laughs> yes. functionality in Rake. And I think it even were some changes in YAML that were not backwards compatible and And some of those were fixed for 1.84. But do you think, is that just a natural part of the growth of Ruby and the improvement? Of course, with 2.0, we're going to have probably a lot more changes. Do you think uh, people should, the core team should pay a lot more attention to backwards compatibility? Or is that just a necessary price of forward progress?
1: Well, the answer to that is it kind of depends. And it's a balancing act. You have two things that are good, keeping backwards compatible so code continues to run, but also evolving the language so that it changes over time and becomes, well, hopefully better. I think we have a unique opportunity with Ruby in that we can still, it's still small enough that we can continue to evolve it. Um, But to me, that means that you need to be really careful. You want to make, if you make a change that is not backward compatible, there needs to be a really clear advantage in moving that direction um, if there's no clear advantage to the new way of doing something then backwards compatibility is something that's pretty important to keep I, I ran across that myself um, with the builder software, the XML builder software the, last year um, people a lot of people were writing in and saying hey, this, the builder does not automatically quote or escape special characters in the attribute fields and the values of the attributes. And I said, yes, it's done very deliberately because I had one early user of the software who were, was using entity references in attribute values. And, of course, you need to put an ampersand in there, and if I automatically escaped all that, he would not be able to use Builder for his purposes. Uh, I had a conversation with Sam Ruby, um, over a Ruby conference, a little bit before that, over email too, and he said that uh, you know that's that's a good point. Backwards compatibility is good, but everybody's saying that this doesn't work the way they expect. Chances are that with the default behavior builder, we're going to get incorrect output out of Builder and. Um, it should be corrected. I thought at first, okay, I'll go and put an option in it to change the default behavior to start quoting. And Sam says, you know, that's great, but most people will forget to put the option, and that means we have the chance, a higher chance of having wrong output. It is a good thing to make it give the correct output, and it's it's a good enough thing that breaking backwards compatibility is probably a okay thing to do in that case and he convinced me so the latest version of builder uh broke backwards compatibility and uh it now automatically quotes attributes and strings and i figured out a way to make it easily handle not quoting um attribute values as well so people who need to use the old way of doing it can still get that functionality just have to do it a little bit differently than they had before the software is better uh it's not backwards compatible but uh You know, I announced it very strongly in the release notes and put a new version number on it. Uh, And if you're using GEMS, you can always specify exactly what version you need for your software. And uh, I think it was a good decision in that case. So it's a balancing act, and you really got to look at both sides of the issue.
0: That sounds like a good compromise. Life is a compromise.
1: (laughs) You're always... You know, engineering is... Making those kinds of decisions, you know, what is you know, there's benefits to doing this, and there's detriments to doing this, and finding that right balance of choices so you get the best benefits out of the whole um, whole system is 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 a, it's a matter of engineering and making those kinds of choices.
0: Well, XML Builder, as you brought up, another widely used library, and other people have even. Used or been inspired by the format and how that flexes the power of Ruby and method missing and, the, and those kinds of things. Scott Barron did some work with CSS that I think is a standard part of XML Builder now. And where like I, I, it's
1: in it's in the CVS head. We haven't quite released it yet. Scott said it's not quite ready. Oh, okay. Uh, I hope to have it. I hope to have it out officially. Uh, probably the next release. Yeah, that's exciting stuff.
0: Well, and then uh, Why the Lucky Stiff also had some Markaby templates where you could do the same thing with HTML, although you could use XML Builder probably to write HTML as well. At any rate, he customized something special for for doing HTML. Where did you come up with the idea for that? Was it a similar spur-of-the-moment idea, or were you trying to solve another problem? How did that happen?
1: Uh, That was 100% stolen from the Groovy language. I was um, working on a presentation for our local Java users group here about uh, two summers ago. And I was studying the Groovy language in, in order to, you know, talk about it. The Java user group. Everybody was excited about dynamic languages, and and they got tired of me always talking about Ruby at, at the Java group. So I thought, well, maybe I'll talk about Groovy and get to talk about the same type of things. And and uh, it was it was fun. But in doing so, I was reading about Groovy, and they have this whole concept of builders, uh, XML builders. They have Swing uh, builders where you specify. Uh, your, your swing components in a builder style manner. Uh, they had, uh, some ant builder stuff and they had a, all of these builders in here. And I looked at that and I said, oh, you know what? That would be really easy to do in Ruby. So I quickly ginned up a prototype of it and and published it up and said, hey, look at this. This is kind of cool. And it was one of those things that kind of caught on. And, uh, David Hannemeyer Hansen emailed me at one point and said, hey, I'm going to stick this into Rails as, uh, for building XML output. I thought, wow, that's kind of neat. So it was kind of unexpected, kind of a little copying of uh, the Groovy library there that uh, inspired it.
0: With talking to some people in the last week or so, people really like that style of building XML, and yet doing a similar thing for HTML seems foreign. I don't know if people are used to typing angle brackets, but with XML it seems to work better with how people think
1: <laughs> my my very first rails project i actually did the entire output of it using xml builder uh, rather than the uh rhtml well wow. <laughs> and uh just just to just to try and see how it worked i would, you know it's what you're focusing on when you're doing stuff like that is uh, the programming issues, and we have very strong, um, what word am I looking for, strong knowledge to, to help us control how we build software. You know, we know how to refactor things. We know how to take functionality and combine them into uh, subroutines and methods and, and reuse things when you're working on the programming side, and it's tougher when you're dealing with it from a, a template side. At least for me because i 'm mainly a, a a programmer, and that 's what I think about most, so it was very natural for me to use that to generate the html and uh, it was it was kind of fun um, i'm not I, I'm not convinced that's the way you should do it at all, but for that it was a kind of a proof of concept and worked pretty well the XML builder thing is an interesting thing too because it's the dSL in a way a domain specific language and there were two versions of XML Builder. There was the first version, which copied the groovy way of doing things almost exactly. And I dis- discovered that I didn't like that so much because what it did is pass the block into the builder object, and then b- the builder object internally did a instance eval on that block, which meant that all the methods in the block were sent to the instance rather than being sent to the surrounding context where the block is used. That works great, as long as all the methods in that block are really instance methods. But as soon as you start combining those instance methods with methods that should be invoked in the context object, then there's a mismatch. And and that piece of block code doesn't act like the code surrounding it. And that bothered me a lot. So today XML Builder will pass in a parameter, and you have to explicitly invoke those uh, builder methods on the builder object. And it's a little more verbose than the groovy way of doing things, but it's a little more um, consistent, a little more uh, um, reliable. You know exactly
0: where the methods are going to go. Well, of course, you've done other things as well, but uh, for both of these, they can be boring topics generating file formats and automating everyday tasks and yet being able to do it in a way that allows you to stay within Ruby and do it in a easy way makes it a lot more enjoyable and, and for me helps me automate a lot more things that I may struggle through manually otherwise But but now I can say hey let's automate it and get it done so thanks for your work on that, and I'm sure they'll well, continue you, to improve. You're, you're welcome. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to make my new motto, uh, Better Living Through Automation. That's a good motto. <laughs> I want to thank people who've donated to the podcast. James Can, of nativetext.com is launching a translation service. He donated two USB Skype phones that we will use to mail around to people. Try to improve the quality on both ends of the line. If you want to donate money, time, equipment, whatever, do you have a variety of needs? Send an email to boss at topfunky.com. Looking forward to the future, I will be at South by Southwest Interactive Conference and Festival interviewing several different people. Some interviews lined up already, so that's March 10th to 14th. I'm going to try to post almost daily with live updates from South by Southwest. Or if you happen to be there, I may see you there as well. So this has been the Ruby on Rails podcast, and tune in next time.
1: Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon! Chunky bacon, chunky bacon.